You guys remember November? It was a long, it was a long time ago, right? Like, it's hard to remember November. Uh, back in November, we started a series on the book of Matthew. Anybody remember that? No? Some people. Um, we called it the once and future king because the gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus as the long-promised king. We explored Jesus' central message and mission and how he was the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise that a long-awaited king would come and set things right on this ruined world. And we explored how Jesus' mission was to defeat the dark powers that currently ruled this world and to set people free from sin and death. His message, we said, was gospel or good news. That's why we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels. It means good news. It's an announcement of a new role and reign with him as king. And our world filled with pandemics and racism and mass shootings and economic uncertainty. Our hearts long for things to be set right, whether you're religious or not religious, whether you're spiritual or not. We all have this ache inside of us. Something's wrong with our world, and we want it to be made right. Jesus claims to be the rightful king for the world, and when he reigns as king, everything will be made right. His rule will be so good, it will work backwards to unmake every wrong. That's good news that every human being regardless of where you come from or what you believe, can get excited about. If Jesus is really who he claims to be, he's the fulfillment of every human longing. We all desire to see pain and sickness and death eradicated forever. And that's why Jesus says, him being king is good news. Today we're continuing where we left off. We covered between November and February. We made it through just such a huge chunk of Matthew. We got from chapters 1 to 4 in all those months. I know. What, what progress, right? And at that point, I was like, I need a break from Matthew. It's been too much Matthew, and we did some different things. But now we're back. And over the next few years, Lord willing, we're going to work through the entire book of Matthew verse by verse. And you're going to get a sense for what Matthew is all about, what Jesus' message and mission are all about. And we'll understand why Jesus as king is good news. But today, over the summer, we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We'll go verse by verse, working through the Sermon on the Mount. It's the densest collection of Jesus' teachings in the Bible. And practically, it is where he outlines what it looks like for us to live lives as kingdom people who swear allegiance to him as king. Most scholars believe the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus delivered on the Mount, was Jesus' go-to message as he traveled around. He was a traveling rabbi, and as he went to different towns, this is probably the message that he took with him. As he taught and healed and announced the good news of his coming kingdom, he probably repeated a lot of these things from town to town. Luke records a sermon that was given on a plane, not on a mount, in Luke chapter 6. A third of that sermon is word for word the same as Sermon on the Mount here. So Jesus is at least reusing some of the same material, and this is most likely his most commonly repeated teachings as he travels around and he tells different people, this is what life looks like if I become your king. Now, Matthew splits the Sermon on the Mount into three sections, and each of those three sections, he breaks into three sections. 
uh, the Beatitudes, the, the part that you probably know in the Bible as blessed are, the blessed are section. Um, the first of these three sections is the Beatitudes. It lists nine blessings in three sets of three. Matthew loves to use the number three all through his book. He breaks things into threes. He gives three examples. He's a brilliant and meticulous writer, and he works really hard for his gospel to read like an Old Testament book did. He works really hard to write like the Old Testament authors did as meditation literature with design patterns and repetitions, um, really written in a way so that truth is revealed to you as you read and reread the passages over and over. Rough breakdown on the Sermon on the Mount. Three groups, I said again, Matthew breaks it into three parts. The first part is the Beatitudes, that's the Blessed Are section. The second is misconceptions about Old Testament teachings. And then the third section is new teachings from Jesus. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses or five sermons that Matthew records in his book. And the Sermon on the Mount is the longest continual discourse of Jesus found in the New Testament. It's one of the most widely quoted sections of the Gospels and of the New Testament. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount includes some of the best-known teachings of Jesus, such as the Lord's Prayer. Um, many scholars believe the Sermon on the Mount is ground zero for Christian discipleship. If we're going to become disciples, students of how Jesus lived and loved, this is ground zero, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the King's manifesto of what he wants his followers to live and love like. I think sometimes when I say things like live and love like Jesus, people are like, be nice. That means be nice. You know, like someone's trying to get over, I'm going to live like Jesus and let him over. And, I'll, you know, I'll only honk instead of like waving fingers out the window or yelling profanities, right? Living like Jesus. Um, but it, it means so much more than that. But it is an everyday thing. It's everyday ordinary practices. And we're going to talk about those as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Um... So, the word Christian means little Christ. It was originally a slur used to describe early followers of Jesus. In the ancient Christian world, Christian didn't mean, oh, I go to church on Sunday. Or it didn't mean, I believe these set of beliefs that have been written down somewhere. It meant that the way you lived looked like the way Jesus lived. That was a slur because the way Jesus lived and acted seemed ridiculous to the Roman Empire who valued power and wealth above all else. Uh, this is why I think the Sermon on the Mount is so essential because sometimes we think we can call ourselves Christian and yet we don't actually live out any of his teachings. And if we are going to say we're students, apprentices, disciples of Jesus, we need to at least live out the ground zero teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Augustine, the theologian and philosopher who lived around 300 years after Jesus, said this, If anyone will piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus spoke on the mount, as we read it in the gospel according to Matthew, I think they will find in it, so far as regards the highest morals and the perfect standard of the Christian life. Augustine felt like the Sermon on the Mount was the perfect standard of what our life as Christians should look like. So, Enough introduction. Let's jump in. Let's read some of this. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. I stand up to speak, right? But in first century uh, Jewish culture, you would sit down to teach. You would sit down to teach. So it would be reversed. I'd be out there and you'd be up here. Um, his disciples came to him 
and he began to teach them. So that's it. We're just going to cover three verses today. I know it's going to take us all summer to get through it if I keep at this pace, right? The reason I want to just do three verses is before we get into the meat of Jesus's teachings, we have to deal with a bit of controversy surrounding these verses. See, I was raised in churches that said the Sermon on the Mount was an impossible moral ideal. They taught me that it was designed to be so impossible so that I would realize I couldn't be good enough on my own and recognize the fact that I needed Jesus. And I understand why I was taught this, right? I grew up in churches that had been shaped by the Protestant Reformation, so all their messaging was about what makes us different from Catholic Christians. Because of this historic background, churches that I grew up in stressed the importance of people knowing that they could not and not earn God's love. It is given as a gift of grace. And we know that. Paul goes on and on about that in the New Testament. But sometimes this perspective makes us forget that the love of God should compel us to act as God would. We do not earn the love of God by acting like God, but the love of God should compel us to act as God does. Remember what John said in 1 John? He said, if you've experienced the love of God, but it doesn't lead you to love other people, then you're lying about knowing God. Loving others doesn't earn God's love, but being loved by God will make you love others. And if you don't love others, you haven't experienced his love. And notice how Matthew introduces the sermon here. He doesn't say, now Jesus, hoping to convince his disciples that they couldn't be good enough without him, told them this impossible uh, set of morality and ethical standards. No, that's not what he says. He says, his disciples came to them and he began to teach them. He taught them. It is not only how the sermon starts, though, that has convinced me that this is a practical guide on how to live in love, like we, uh, like we are students of Jesus' way of life, but look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to this in August or September, hopefully, hopefully by then. Um, Matthew chapter 7, it ends this way. These are the last, some of the last verses in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 24 and 26. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this sermon I just gave you, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. How does Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? Well, obviously, he says, you can't be good enough without me. And so all these things were just to help you realize that you couldn't do it. You don't actually have to do them just as long as you realize you can't do it. No, he says, if you don't live these out, you're a fool. Because the abundant life that I offer involves actually practicing what I teach, not just saying, that sounds nice, that sounds good, and then doing whatever you want. He expects us to act on his teaching. The foolish are those who hear what Jesus says and say, yes, I agree with that. I believe that. That's good. And then they never, ever practice that. The foolish are not those who try to follow his teachings and fail, but the foolish are those who never even try because they say it's too difficult. I think some of the confusion about this passage is because we aren't familiar, we aren't as familiar as the first century people were about what a disciple is. Like people don't walk around in our culture and it's like, you look pretty cool, you wanna be my disciple? You know, like nobody, nobody does that, right? If we did, we'd be like, cult, stay away from me, you know? Um, but in the first century, rabbis would travel around Palestine 
teaching a way of life based on the Old Testament. They would recruit, recruit students. They would go to synagogues, and they would say, who's your best student here? And they'd try to recruit that student to become their apprentice, and they would memorize the teachings of their master, travel around with them, and they would model their master's life. A rabbi's summary of what their way of life looked like, what they taught and what they modeled, was sometimes called a yoke. A yoke. You know a yoke? I think we have a picture up here. A yoke. It guides an animal, right, plowing a field. Now, a disciple, an apprentice, would be yoked in with their master, so they're forced to walk alongside him. They're forced to go the same direction as him. They're forced to plow their, or lead their life in the same direction that their master did. A yoke is a harness that fits over an animal so that they can be guided into straight lines when plowing. The teaching of a rabbi was to guide people into a direction, into a way of life. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What did Jesus say? There's a lot of rabbis out there. There's a lot of Pharisees. There's a lot of teachers. And what they want to do is just keep heaping stuff on you that ends up making you feel anxious and guilty and ashamed. And he's like, take my yoke upon you. It's, I'm gentle and humble, and you're going to find rest for your soul. You're going to find what your soul longs for. The Sermon on the Mount is the guidelines of what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. This is a practical explanation of what it looks like to live in this world every day, any day that ends with why, with Jesus as your king. I like to call the Sermon on the Mount the King's Manifesto. You know when a rebel leader writes up a manifesto and he's like, this is my take on what the world needs to look like and what needs to happen and people band together, you know, and they pass around the PDF on the dark web or whatever. This is Jesus's manifesto about how the church should live and how that should be a transforming kingdom in this world. So, all that to be said, we need to look at the Sermon on the Mount, though, as less a list of commands and more of an explanation of what life looks like if you kneel before King Jesus and become an apprentice of his way of life. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, not an easy read, but probably one of the best reads of my entire life. Um, if you can, if you can get through his dense language, it's worth reading. He says this, from start to finish in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, he is not giving us commands, but he's illustrating the blessings of living under God's role. The people described in the Sermon on the Mount are able to be the kind of people that Jesus describes because they are living their everyday lives with his spirituality. They go to God through the grace of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on their behalf, and they trust God as he does, apprenticing themselves to him. Jesus is their Lord and Savior and their teacher and their master, and they train under him. So why do I think so many modern churches, at least the churches that I grew up in with, uh, dismiss the Sermon on the Mount? I remember I was teaching a small group one time um, for adults, and I was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And this one lady, she's like, uh, I don't, uh, we were actually talking about the passage about loving your enemies. And she was like, I don't have to do that because Jesus died for me. And I was like, 
because Jesus died for you, you should want to love your enemies. But it's a weird thing that we've got into. We've got into a weird place where we can read something and we can say, well, I don't need to do that. Jesus did something for me on the cross, so that means I don't have to live like him today. His death on the cross should compel you to live like him today. I think that part of the reason churches often dismiss the Sermon on the Mount, though, is because we don't like what it says. We want a Christianity that makes us powerful and wealthy. We want a Christianity that makes us in control and comfortable. And here's a quick sample of some of the things Jesus says are evidence that we have made him king in our lives. We will love our enemies if Jesus is king. We will not trash talk them online. We will not belittle them or badger them or call them slurs. We will not wish for their doom or their destruction or their defeat. We will love our enemies. We will do good to those who have wronged us. We will not get retaliation. We will not get revenge. We will not daydream about getting revenge against them. We will do good for those who have wronged us. We won't store up wealth and treasure. We won't get bigger cars and bigger houses and get more and more stuff. But we will store up treasure where it matters in relationships and spirituality. We won't seek to be seen and attract attention to ourselves. We won't become influencers. We will instead quietly love people when nobody notices. We won't flaunt our spirituality. Instead, we will practice authenticity even when no one knows how much we are sacrificing. I think the reason that churches don't like the Sermon on the Mount is it presents a view of Christianity that doesn't look like most of our churches doesn't look like our American Christianity. It doesn't present a view of Christianity that we like. Many times our churches and our ideas about the American good life are completely contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. So many churches have built themselves on a platform of hating their enemies or getting even with those that wrong us or getting wealthy and powerful and flaunting their spirituality. But rather than repent and admit that something else or someone else is our king, we'd rather just dismiss the Sermon on the Mount and deceive ourselves. But remember what Jesus said? I just read it a few minutes ago at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you hear his teachings and you don't practice it, we are what? Fools. We're fools. I think we have foolish churches and foolish Christians who call themselves followers of Jesus, who say they have knelt before Jesus as king, but they don't actually follow his teachings because they just don't like them. Dallas Willard again said this, the greatest issue facing the world today. Does our world have some issues? Yes. <laughs> like, watch the news for 30 seconds. Like, our world has issues. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, apprentices, actual practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. That's what the world needs. People who say they're Christians to actually become practitioners of Jesus's way of life, the life of the kingdom of heavens. So over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack the Sermon of the Mount. Next weeks and months, we're going to walk through what Jesus teaches and why he teaches that and why when we have bowed our knee to Jesus, these things become true in our lives. Now, over the next few weeks, you and I have some options. I can write some messages over the next few weeks and I can be like, 
I'm going to really tell people these things because they need to hear it, and I can go about my own life and ignore them. And you can do the same thing. You can sit out there and listen. You can watch online or listen to the podcast and say, that sounds nice. I believe that. Amen. And not do anything. Or we can actually obey. We can get down on our knees and let Jesus wear the crown in our lives, and we can live out these things. Jesus came preaching a new way to be human, claiming that he would introduce a new era of human history called the kingdom of God. And too often we call Jesus our king with our mouth. And with our lives, we are living as spiritual rebels. So as we close today, I want all of us to just take a moment. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And I want you to reflect on who is really in charge in your life. Is it your pleasure? Is it your checkbook? Is it your ambition? Is it your comfort? Is it your politics? Or is it King Jesus? Because most of us claim we want to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers, but we live as if we do not want to experience that abundant life. So I'm going to end, though, with a, a, a vivid, I think, picture of what it's like to live. Um, before you hit play what it's like to live building your life on sand, right? Um, this was actually taken by the National Park Service in the Outer Banks. About two weeks ago, they caught the collapse of a beach house on film. Go ahead and hit play. There it goes, floating off into the ocean. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, if you build, if, if you live out my teachings, you're building on stone. If you just hear it and you don't do anything with it, this is you. This is your life. Floating off into the ocean. The fool builds his life on the sand, but the wise person puts into practice what Jesus teaches. Which one are we? Lord Jesus, thank you for your Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for what you teach, what you preach, what you lived out. You just didn't say these things. You lived them out. You practiced them. And God, I pray that this next few weeks and next few months will actually be uh, just a reminder to me to make you my king, to not just like teach things or read about things or research things, but to actually live them out. Because if not, I'm like a house on the outer banks that is now floating out into the Atlantic somewhere. God, I pray that over the next few weeks, the things we read about, that we don't say, well, that sounds too hard. I don't like it. And we just move on. Instead, may we wrestle with and repent of the teachings of yours that we don't like, we don't want to do, we don't want to live out because it's so much easier, it feels so much better to hate our enemies than love them. May we recognize that there are still places in our life where you are not king. We still want our way instead of your way. Just take a few minutes here before they start singing and reflect on who is in charge in your life. <laughs>